You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Father, as we come before you, uh, we... Right now, God, just ask for your grace. Lord, I I pray and I ask you that in these moments, the meditation of the scriptures would drive us to have um, a passion to see our neighbors and the nations come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would, by your spirit, use these words to fuel your mission uh, and progress it forward in the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom in Ventura as it is Um, in heaven. Lord, we just want to see your will be done. Lord, we we ask that you would uh, in some ways wreck us for uh, for good, that we would be able to um, or, or not be able to rest or sleep uh, comfortably knowing that uh, what you're up to in the world is uh, bringing people uh, and peoples to uh, the kingdom uh, through the gospel, through the Messiah, redeeming and restoring, uh, Lord. And, and Yeah, and you've been doing that since the beginning of time. And so I just pray, God, that our reflection today in the Psalms that really brings together even our reflection in the Psalms through this summer uh, would be uh, that which propels us, Lord, into your mission deeper, that the love of Christ, that your love, God, would compel us to sacrifice uh, on behalf of your people Um, at all cost. Lord, I pray for myself in these moments, Lord, just asking that you would give me the words that you want to be spoken from this psalm, that you would uh, trim what needs to be trimmed, that you would expand what needs to be expanded, God, and just that we always ask for you to preach a better sermon than uh, has been prepared. So would you just give grace, Lord, give unction, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill all of us as we listen even uh, to hear your voice and to be in step with your lead. And we ask that, God, in the name of Christ. And so spirit come and help us in these moments. Amen. Well, we've been journeying through the book of Psalms uh, for the summer, and it's been great, uh, not necessarily this chronological uh, reflection of each one of the Psalms, but it has been uh, a consistent kind of movement through three themes. And the first theme was Selah, and we wanted to uh, really focus on what does it mean to reflect and to pause, right, in times of struggle, uh, how do we how do we reflect on God and who He is, and allow that to fuel us in our our, our everyday and our attitudes, right, and even in our worship of Him. And then we looked at sing. What does it mean to uh, to to rejoice, if you would, in times of struggle, uh, where we even though we might have a pinch of circumstances, or we might have a time of 
uh, suffering, that we could rejoice and look to him. And then now for these last few weeks, it's been a little bit uh, maybe harder to follow, but we've been looking further than just sing, but shout. Uh, and I hope some of that energy has been coming uh, through and the idea that we would even look there today in celebration is, is, is not just shout at the good times, but remembering that our rejoicing and um, our, our, our praising God can happen in times of trouble and it can be uh, loud and it can be big and it can be, um, uh, you know, joy comes through, not just in times when we're happy, but in times when uh, trouble is there and when trouble is not there. And so as we reflected there, we come to Psalm 96 and Psalm 96, just like another, uh, a number of the other Psalms, it has a very specific context. It's not just something that was placed in the center of your Bibles uh, and it, it stands alone, but no, it has a place and a time and even an author uh, that is attributed to it. You don't see it in Psalm 96. It just starts and says, Oh, sing. Uh, you don't have anything like some of the other Psalms that said a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph or the Psalm of the sons of Korah. But what we do know is that it has been placed in our Bible for a reason. And in studying this, you find that uh, it actually does have an author and the author is David. David wrote this song. Uh, at a time and said that it should be sang by Asaph and the Levites and that he wrote that at a time when the ark was returned to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the ark or the ark of the covenant, if you never heard that, it's a good time to study on that and to understand the significance of the ark in the Old Testament and to the people of God who, who journeyed through the wilderness uh, and had found God's presence and his protection with them through the ark, right? The ark of the covenant was designed to be a symbol of the presence of God. And inside of the ark, you had uh, the tablets that had the 10 commandments inscribed on them. And you even had uh, a piece of manna, a piece of the bread that God had brought down from heaven as the children of Israel uh, traversed through the wilderness. And it was to remind them of God's love for them, God's uh, care for them, and God's provision. Now, the Philistines captured the ark and stole it. The enemies of God that David will one day as a boy stand up and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who comes against uh, the God, right? And, uh, the, the God's people. And he would go and he would uh, actually kill Goliath, right? Goliath was one of them. The Philistines had captured it. And they had defeated the Israelites in a battle. And it was under David's rule that the Philistines were defeated and the ark was brought back. And so when you come to 1 Samuel, you start to see these things taking place. And when you move over to a book, it's called 1 Chronicles, that just chronicles the timeline of how these things had taken place. You come to First Chronicles and you see in chapter 15 that the ark is brought home. It's First Samuel verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 8 down to 36. In your Bibles, it has a title that says David's Song of Thanks. David's Psalm or Song of Thanks. And it is identical to what you see in your Bibles now in Psalm 96. And so let's read this psalm 
Remember the context a little bit, just understanding that it had been brought back or the, the, the psalm was written and had been sang by Asaph and the Levites in the time that the Ark of the Covenant that signified God's presence with the people had been brought back. Let's read this together and then uh, let's look at our sermon. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This song reminds us that our praise and our worship and our singing is not just about our emotional feelings. John Piper taking from a verse here in verse number 11, let the heavens be glad or let the nations be glad let the earth rejoice. He wrote a book and in it he says things like, uh, missions exists because, or worship exists because, uh, or missions exist because worship doesn't. And he's basically saying here, and we've have we've we've dealt with this in some ways, just saying that worship and singing is actually a missional thing. It's a community project, and it's meant to lead the world to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so this song is no different. And I think this is one of the cardinal songs that leads us to that. It reminds us that our praise and our worship is, is about God's mission in the world. And it's about the healing of the nations. And what we want to do is we want to look at this psalm and we want to look at it from two perspectives. We want to look at it as a, a, a song that is worshiping God as Savior and a song that is worshiping God as King. And we want to realize that what God has sent us into the world to do is to praise Him and to worship Him in those categories and, and even to see Him in some of His attributes, to give glory to His name, to obey Him, to love Him above all else but it's not psalm 95 which says let us sing songs of praise this is psalm 96 that that tells us to worship uh tells us to worship him in his splendor but also tells us to call the nations call the peoples call all of the earth to worship him in the same manner and so let's look at it and realize that worship is missional at its core and it should be for us 
Psalm 96 begins with, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. What we've been called to do is to sing to the Lord of his salvation, sing to the Lord and worship God. First point, to worship him as the Savior. When you think about what it looks like to sing songs to God and sing uh, to, to, to worship the Lord and to praise him, go back to recognizing that the, the children of Israel had been defeated before by the Philistines, which represented the enemies of God. And, and we know, and we've talked about it before, that our greatest enemy, even coming out of that in a symbolic manner, is, is sin and death and the grave. And when we come to a place like Psalm 96, we see this prophetic and this beautiful psalm that's pointing us to or pointing the children of Israel to do what? To sing of God's salvation from day to day. Salvation from their enemies there. Salvation in battle. Salvation through war. Salvation from the Philistines. But salvation and salvation not just temporally, but eternally. David was very aware of this as a prophet of Yahweh, as a person who ruled, who had been promised that his king would extend into everlasting and that there would be one who would come behind him and that would sit on that throne forever. This is a psalm that calls us to worship God as the Savior, not just the Savior from circumstances and trials and things that we experience here where uh, our enemies come against us on earth, but to worship God as the Savior of the world. That's why you find in verse number three, declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples. When we see the word nations and we see the word peoples, we've talked about this over and over. It has to do with those who at the time are outside the commonwealth of Israel. And it has to do with declaring and preaching and praising and singing of God's marvelous works, not just his works to save uh, Israel in time and in space from the Philistines, but to declare of God's salvation and his marvelous works through the Messiah to everybody, everywhere, around the globe, and for all times. Why do we do that? We can see what we do here, but what is our why? I'm really, really big all, all time on uh, knowing our why. Why do we do that? For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. There's the big G God and there's the little G gods, right? You have those gods that the pagans would go after, that the Gentile nations might have worshipped, the gods that we craft on our own, all the idols of our hearts. Those things are worthless, the Bible tells us here. He says all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So go and declare among the nations who do not know Yahweh, among the people who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. Go, go declare among the peoples, um, no matter who they are, no matter what gods they worship, declare the greatness of God the Lord because he is worthy to be praised and greatly 
That means that our worship should be loud. Our worship should be big. Our worship should be like exciting and, and something that uh, it, it's, you can't contain it. It's spontaneous and it's outrageous, right? It's like the, we talked about last week, that hilarity or, or being hilarious is just something that you just can't contain yourself. And so your mouth is filled with it and you go out and you speak that to the people. That's what worship is about, especially even our song worship. When we sing, when we worship, when we're gathered as the church, one of the telltale signs that something is disconnected from not just our individual hearts, but our corporate community is when the people aren't singing. When the people aren't singing, the people aren't overjoyed. When the people aren't overjoyed, they can't praise God in the midst of struggle. They don't rejoice in the time of trouble. They don't even reflect on the gospel and and, and are able to just burst out in songs of praise, even though they're in the midst of great trial and tribulation because they're just unbothered and, and, and relatively unimpressed. That's not who God is, and that's not what we're called to interact with him and interface with him like. He is to be feared above all gods. He's greatly to be praised. And so whenever you come into a community, a Christian community, the people of God who, who claim to be so grateful for the good news of what God has done for mankind in Jesus Christ and, and, and what that means for them personally and corporately as we journey up toward the kingdom and head toward heaven and eternal life with God and forever. Whenever you come into a community like that, you should be overwhelmed by, especially if you're one who does not know, who does, who has not experienced these things and, and, and is not living in that freedom. You should be overwhelmed by a sense of they really believe and are excited about this, especially in their singing. Whenever you go into a place and you, you, you judge whether or not people really do believe in the things that they're selling to you or promoting to you, one of the ways that you can tell is whether or not they really get excited about that. Are they promoting things that maybe you're familiar with, but you, you, you don't know by experience and, and they just can talk to you about it backward and forward and they can tell you all the statistics of it. I never forget one of our church planner friends up in Oakland and they, they actually donated some uh, funds to us earlier this year, the movement church in Oakland. We're really grateful for them. I think about Edward and the fact that he was preaching and teaching to the pastors and wives last year. And, and he came and he talked about, everybody knows about Ed, man. He got all the J's, a whole bunch of Jordans. I mean, he's got all of them and he, he raises up his backpack and he pulls out uh, a certain pair of Jordans. I think it might've been some threes or maybe some fours. And he's like, this is Jordan. He wore it this game and he wore it at that time. And this is why he did. This is why it's called this. And this is how special it is. This is how much it's worth. I mean, he had all the statistics of it. And what he was talking about at that time is that sometimes our hearts can be so much more impressed and prone to know the deeps of things. We can get so excited about things that are temporal when God is the one who is greatly to be praised. My prayer, my, my desire for a rise, my desire for us as, as we even think about what it means to be a church in Ventura, for Ventura, my prayer is that the first thing we would do is get impressed with who God is and that that would call us 
to a place or cause us to go to a place where we cannot be contained in worship. And I'm talking about singing and I'm talking about praising. I'm talking about declaring among the peoples the greatness and the goodness of God. That's what we're called to do. That's what this psalm, though it was written at a time and for a people in a specific circumstance, that's what this psalm is calling you and I into. We're being invited into something, but it's also a command of sorts, a number of commands, sing, sing, sing four times, declare, declare, right? I want you to ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. I want you to say this. This is, this is a call for us to do something And it's not something that is trivial and it's also not something that's optional. And so the question that I have for us, friends, is if my heart does not lead me to that in worship, if I am not known and and, and, uh, known to or prone to uh, come into the sanctuary, right, whether that be my living room right now and and there's songs that are that are. being led through and lyrics that are coming across the screen that that tell of God's marvelous works that lead me to a place of reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ and and I can and I can I can see that there's work been put in and I've been called and invited into that by uh, by, by by those who are leading through it and, and I mean if if I can be unbothered to that and and almost want to fast forward or skip through that part or if, or if when I if, if I'm I'm known to be the one who comes into the place when the church is gathered and you know, if the singing is happening, I don't really have to be in there. Maybe I can, it's time for me to just, uh, you know, I can, I can excuse that point. I'm only here for a certain point. If that's my attitude, I need a heart check. I need to ask myself why it is that I don't see this command and call an invitation to sing to the Lord and to bless his name and to declare his glory and his marvelous works as a, as a privilege and an opportunity to experience grace and to be a part of God uh, 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 propelling the mission forward in our day and in our culture. He tells us that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And then he goes on and he says, the Lord made the heavens. When we think about our why, it's not just that there's there's something bad about the little G gods or something deficient in them. There's this comparison. He says all the gods of the peoples are created, but our God, the God of the created, he's the creator. So there's one thing that says you fashioned a God for you to worship that it has to be subject to you and your ability and a figment of your imagination. I think about Acts chapter 17 and Paul standing at the Areopagus. He's in Athens there and they have uh, uh, tombs and they have statues all spread around and they come and they say, hey, you've been babbling about Jesus and the resurrection. Why don't you stand up here and make a fool of yourself? And one of the things that he stands there and says is the God of heaven is the creator and he is not served by human hands, nor is he found to be in statues of gold and stone. He said, these things you've made them. And those things are idols of of your own hearts. These things promote your own comforts. The God of the heavens is the one who created you. That's who we're to worship. That's why we're to worship him. Does, is it a big deal to you? Is it something that just calls your heart to be enveloped by passion that God, the creator of heaven and earth, has initiated 
everything that need that you need to be in a relationship with him and to share in his kingdom and, and to be with him forever. Does it mean anything to you that that all powerful God is a friend? It's a father. Shares his kingdom. Is 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 close and knows every hair on your head that he knows you and he calls you by name and that he's even prepared a new name for you and a new wardrobe that you'd be covered in the perfect righteousness that you could never ever earn that salvation that I mean are you led to worship God as savior when you think about who God is well I hope so and, and I believe so, and I know so in, in, the, in the lives and the testimonies that you share and, 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 and that I get to observe and that we participate and partner together in, I see that. But here is the call for us. The call is to take that and not be insular with it, not to allow it to be that thing that we just declare among ourselves. No, he said declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. He's saying it doesn't matter. There are no boundaries. There's no place. There's no people. There's no land language. There's nobody who should not hear about this. And as the people of God who know these things, you should go, even as you see people with other religious affiliation, or you see people who might uh, declare that their God that they've created is great, or the, the idols that you see that they worship, whether it be comfort and pleasure and ease. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it is that you would go money, right? You just go and you, you say, Jesus is better. God is greater, right? And he loves you. That's what we've been called to do, to call on the worship of God and to declare of his salvation and to do that among everyone. Verse six kind of transitions us from declaring of God's salvation to declaring and to worshiping God, not just as a savior, but worshiping him as king. You see the word splendor and majesty are before him. It's this idea of being before or bowing before. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And it says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord uh, the glory, do his name and bring an offering, right? Come into his courts, worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. It's this idea of a kingdom and of kingship and all the language there. When you see splendor and you see majesty and you see uh, ascribe to the Lord, all the families of the earth. Now it's a call, not just to you, but it's, it's a call to the nation, to the unbelievers, to the, all of uh, the people of the world. He says, everybody, that's what we do with a king. Everybody, everybody ascribe, ascribe to the Lord. And it says, ascribe to him the glory and the strength that he has. It talks about his glory twice, right? The glory do his name. This idea, right? Glory just comes from this word that means heavy. And the idea of heavy, right? We talk about God's glory and his otherness and just the, 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 the majesty and the sheer um, size and magnitude that we could never put into attributes. But if we just look at what the word itself could mean uh, or, or means and, and could be translated as, it's the word heavy. And it's not a heaviness that uh, is a deep sorrow. It's the heaviness of coming back from battle weighed down because you've won and all of the spoils are yours. 
He says, declare and ascribe to the Lord the glory that it's due his name. The battle is won. The kingdom is his and all of the kingdoms and all of the families and all of the peoples and all of the earth and all the universe belongs to him because he's, he's created it. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God is the king. Jesus is king, right? Not just because a pop culture, uh, you know, person professes faith and comes into a place and starts having these rallies and Sunday services and so on. No, Jesus is king because Jesus is king. And Philippians 2 tells us that when he came and left his throne, he came to our neighborhood. He took on our flesh. He took on our servitude and lived in our place. He died in our place. He did so shamefully. And because of that, God has given him a name, Jesus, that is above every name. And it says he's the Lord above every Lord. And it says that every single knee will bow before him. What does that sound like to you other than that Jesus is king? Jesus is the king. So bring him an offering. Bring him all of your life. Come into his courts and come with thanksgiving, right? And, 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 and worship him in the splendor of all of his holiness, right? Tremble before him all the earth. Should we be afraid of him? No, but we should reverence him and we should never just say, oh, Jesus is the homeboy. Oh yeah, I'm down with Jesus, but I'm also over here. Or you know what? I, I do, I'm a part of a church. I go to church, you know, once or twice a month, but I also, I need to do this, that, or the third. We need to give to him everything and we need to tremble before him we should we should rejoice in his salvation we should even rejoice in his kingdom and, his, and see him as king but we also need to just worship him with a reverence that's due to his name well why do i say that Rever, revering him uh, is something that we can see is is definitely uh due to him right he comes and he's he judges the earth verse 13 says and he will judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Sometimes a message like this could be lacking in the reality that, yeah, that missions is, is, is what we should be participating in and our worship should be missional. But what do we realize other than that our songs and our declaring and our singing and our worship of him also tells about a coming judgment and the reality of eternal separation from God in hell if you reject the one through whom he saves the world. And so now there's hope for every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's hope for every man, boy, woman, and girl, but there's also the reality that he is coming. And when he comes, he will judge the whole world according to righteousness his righteousness that is only available in Jesus Christ. Not whether or not you've done this or you've done that, not whether or not you have uh, done everything that's inscribed on those, those tablets that are in the ark, uh, not whether or not you have uh, obeyed him perfectly, but whether or not you have trusted in the Messiah, his beloved son, through whom he saves everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, nations, peoples, families of the earth, all the world, all, 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 all. It means all. There is nobody who's cut off from this. And when we worship God rightly, that's a part of it as well. When we 
think about missional innovation and we think about being a church that's on mission, when we think about personal mission and, and big mission and mission, cross-cultural missions and all these things, do we realize that when John Piper even said those words that missions exist because worship doesn't, we're going and we're telling people, whether it be across the sea or across the street, that there is coming a day when God Jesus will come and judge the earth and to escape that he has made a way of salvation in his kingdom by faith and faith alone. That's a hard pill to swallow and is definitely not politically correct, but it is true. We stand on that and we will never relinquish that. We will never drift from that. We must always focus, focus on right worship. When we think about him as the king, we should also look to verse 10, especially in our moment, in our cultural moment, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, not uh, the governor reigns, not the president reigns, not the Congress reigns, not the judge reigns reigns, whether or not those people reign and have been put in place, whether they reign well or they reign, uh, we, we, we don't think they do, whether we agree with them or we don't agree with them. What we preach is not politics. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. We say among the nations, the Lord's the Lord reigns. And you know what? It says, yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. So it doesn't matter if uh, the Congress changes or if, if po politics switch up on us, if these things go, these laws change and so on and so forth. He established the, the world and all that is in it and it shall never be moved. And it says that he will judge the people's inequity, which is rightness, which is justice. And so it doesn't matter if there's injustice. It just doesn't matter if things don't go the way in which you think think they ought to, God will judge the peoples, which is the nations, which is every person, every, every person that's ever been born in every single generation, he will judge them with justice. And so we don't get up in arms to the degree that we're defeated and we're depressed and, and we, we go away in, in, uh, in a, in a place of, uh, not having the courage and the boldness to stand up and say, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Verses 11 and 12 are just beautiful to me always. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it, right? They shall say, or, or sorry, they, uh, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Here's the deal. That's talking about creation itself. All the, the animals, he said the sea and everything in it. Does that mean that the, the seaweed or the sea lions are going to appraise the Lord? I, the answer is yes, if you ask me. He says the trees and the bushes and the roses, you think they give glory to God right now, right? It is true that Solomon in all of his splendor, Jesus said, was not in comparison to the flowers of the field. But it's also true that that, that picture, Romans chapter 8, of creation being liberated from the, the penalty of sin and death is going to be a beautiful time and there will be praising even among the trees. How's that going to happen? I don't know. I like the Chronicles of Narnia. I like when you see whether the revelation of the sons of God is what I what I pictured there. And when when Aslan is on the throne and then all of a sudden you see the trees and all the bright colors and they're singing and it will be that way. The frustration 
of all of the earth will be overturned. And that's coming. And so when we think about worship, when we think about singing, when we think about psalms, I think we need a little bit of a paradigm shift. We need to see that this is about the mission. It's about seeing people come to the place that they can get just as passionate as I am, but right now they may or may not even care. It's about looking to your neighbor and seeing that your neighbor right now does not know Jesus Christ, does not care about Jesus Christ, and even mocks you because you worship him, but that God has commanded them to ascribe the glory that's due his name, and that he's invited them into this praise and this worship. This is about forsaking everything and spending all that we have for the mission of God in the world. This is about seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for the past. It wasn't just for the first century church, right? We've talked about the fact that uh, singing and all of our songs should be focused in this manner. But I have a couple of illustrations that I want us to close by considering. I want us to see that the Lord has not stopped using worship in the furtherance of the kingdom and mission in our world, even up to our day. You and I know that America's history has uh, been dark and darker at certain times, that there's been uh, a, a lot of sin that has permeated the peoples that occupy the United States of America but I want us to not just look at darkness. I want us to see that there is an unmistakable light that has shined through it. All throughout our past, there have been revivals and there have been songs and there have been, uh, there, there's been a, a revival and surges in songs and singing uh, and praise and worship of Jesus Christ during tumultuous times. This is not the only time that there has been a national crisis. And each time that there has been, there has been a chorus of spontaneous and outrageous worship that has gone out and has been so attractive that many, many people come to Jesus Christ. There's a man named George Lyle. He's the first American missionary. Some people would say the first African-American missionary, but the reality is, is he was the first to cross culture and leave America and to go somewhere else as a missionary. And one of the most significant uh, things that he did was when he got his freedom, he was a slave and he was given freedom because he came to Christ and uh, the pastor baptized him. And one of the deacons in that church was his slave owner. And you want to talk about a modern day Philemon, the relationship between him and his slave changed to the point where his owner gave him freedom and sent him out to pursue his calling. He would be ordained and he would go out and plant churches and preach. And he would do that so much so that churches were born up uh, in, on these different plantations from Savannah all down to South Carolina. And what happens is he eventually had to leave the United States. And he had to leave the United States because his owner died in the Revolutionary War and all of his heirs tried to re-enslave him. And so he was able to pay for uh, his certificate of freedom and he went to Jamaica and there he saw even greater revival and, and large uh, numbers of people being baptized at one time. And you know what came out of all of that, all of those movements? What we have known and come to know as Negro spirituals, the acapella singing, the field hollers that would influence and later be coupled with instrumentation and would turn into gospel music. That came out of a time of fierce persecution and also a time of rejoicing. 
that was happening in the church. You might know about the Azusa Street Revival, William Seymour, mid-1905, 1906. You have thousands of people who are flocking to Azusa Street to hear about this phenomenon that's happening in Los Angeles. I was reading and it showed that backgrounds, people from all backgrounds came together. Men, women, children, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, illiterate, and educated. People of all ages were coming together and most of them were skeptics that were coming to figure out why in the world is this happening and how is this happening. The most attractive force, they say, was the intermingling of ethnicities and cultures and the group's encouragement of women in leadership, which was about 14 years before women actually had the right to vote in America. The LA Times reported on the events and it said these words. In 1906, attendees preached these wild theories, speaking of the Holy Spirit's work of integrating people. And it says they worked themselves into a state of mad excitement in, their, in a peculiar zeal. Colored people and whites composed the congregation and the night is made hideous in the neighborhood because of their howling and singing. The worshipers spent hours swaying forth and back and this nerve wracking attitude of prayer and supplication is experienced. Singing was attractional and thousands of people came, came to Jesus because of the worship of the church. Fast forward, you get down to the Jesus movement. Jamie and I just watched a documentary just a couple weeks ago, finished it up. It's called Adventure in Faith, it's talking about Chuck Smith and the way that he and his wife just pursued the margins of society at that time with the hippie movement. And they saw many people come to Christ. In that documentary, it says that the 1960s had brought this tremendous embarrassment and chaos to the nation where you saw social and moral and political uh, unrest and the assassination of people like MLK and of JFK, right? It led to a whole generation forsaking the church, some pursuing Eastern uh, uh, worship and, 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 and kind of spiritism and most going into LSD and hallucinating drugs. But it was at that time that Chuck and his wife went to Calvary Chapel and they started going down to the beach and they started just going and praying, seeing all the people who were lost. And they cared so much that they just wanted to see somebody come, come to bring one of them to their home. And when it did happen, you know how it happened. The Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel was exploded all over the world. And during that time, here's the reason why I bring it up. It birthed CCM as you and I know it. It birthed music being played in new and fresh ways in the way that you and I know it. And there were songs that were written oftentimes that were written just before the meetings. Like people didn't even have a song before and it came and they wrote songs and, and those songs would turn into be the songs that were sang for years and years and decades uh, leading through that time and even up to our time. I read a testimony of some preachers who said they would regularly have to extend an invitation and an altar call before the sermon because the, the singing of the people and the music was so lively and it was so extraordinary that people who had flocked to the place just to see what was going on, the, the spirit of God was falling on them in conviction and they were coming to Christ before the word was even preached. That is what it means that we worship and we sing to God with the kind of passion that we recognize 
recognize God is doing something in the world and his mission is moving forward. That's what he's calling us to. And, and we're saying God is doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing in Venturi. He's doing a new thing through a rise, right? It's in our day, but you know what? It's the same thing that he's always been doing. Last week, Barry ended and asked us, how will he do it? The answer is how he will do it through us. And how will he do it through us? One of the ways is he will do it through our worship of him that is unstoppable and uncontrollable through our praise as we sing with conviction about his marvelous works, right? And we sing with enthusiasm about the things that he's doing around the world in every generation. And through our new song in Ventura and about his glorious grace, we come to the fact that we sing and we say that there is a new song a new song that had been prophesied about from Isaiah and Jeremiah and written about in Deuteronomy and here spoken of in the Psalms. And we go to Revelation chapter five that says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take away this or take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and were crying with a loud voice. Is that shout enough? Can you imagine thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rows of millions upon millions upon millions of groups and billions of billions of billions and trillions? of people that are all saying in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is the worship of Jesus Christ that should motivate us. The picture of heaven that is drawing us into that place to say in Ventura, as it is in heaven, God, do it again. Do it again, Lord. We want to see salvation to all the peoples, to all the nations in Jesus name and for his glory. And we should say together. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.